0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 5 to 11 this morning, and before I read uh, the passage, I just want to give some introductory comments again. I want to pre-warn you that this this morning's message is uh, going to be heavy once again. Um, If you thought my first sermon in Habakkuk was heavy, this one will be just as heavy, if not heavier. In fact, much of Habakkuk is going to be heavy. And the simple reason why this morning's message is going to be heavy and make some of us feel uncomfortable is because we're doing a deep dive into the justice of God and the sovereignty of God. There's no way to lighten the severity of God without compromising And this is why it's so wise, I think, for preachers to preach through whole books of the Bible, because it demands pastors like myself to preach passages of Scripture that I wouldn't naturally be inclined to preach, especially in our modern day. There's a temptation for pastors today, and I think every generation of pastors, but especially today, to try and lighten the severity of God's judgments revealed in Scripture, To make it seem like it's not as horrifying as it actually is. My natural inclination would be to do this. To make it easier on our ears. But before God, I cannot do that. For though I am accountable to all of you as your pastor, I'm ultimately accountable to God. And so be prepared for a little bit of uncomfortableness this morning. Be prepared for a weightiness that you're typically not used to. Because what we're looking at this morning is offensive to our modern sensibilities. So we're looking at verses five to eleven, but what I want to do is read from verse one just to give us the whole picture. So it begins in verse one, and this is Habakkuk's complaint to God. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. And now God responds to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Is there God? Let's pray. Father, we simply acknowledge that we are finite and your sovereign, mysterious ways are often incomprehensible to us. So forgive us, Lord, for our frailty, forgive us for that we are dust. And I pray, God, that by your Spirit, you would give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive your truth this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts to who you are, that you alone are God and there is no other. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So two weeks ago, we began the book of Habakkuk. We looked at Habakkuk's first complaint to God in verses 1 to 4, and this book is a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk makes his complaint, and then God responds, and then Habakkuk makes a second complaint, and then God responds again. And in verses 1 to 4, we see that Habakkuk was burdened by the evil and wickedness of his own people, Israel. And he's been burdened for some time, and he's been pleading with God to do something, to act, to intervene within the nation of Israel. He wants God to restore justice, righteousness, and goodness within the nation. Because what defines the nation right now is violence. The law of God is disregarded, that is, it's been completely paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. And as we see, when it does go forth, it goes forth perverted. And so Habakkuk makes his complaint before God because he feels as though God has forgotten the nation of Israel. He takes issue with God's seeming indifference. He takes issue with God's lack of action and response. But in verse 5 to 11, God responds. He answers Habakkuk's complaint But his answer isn't remotely comforting to Habakkuk. In fact, it only disturbs Habakkuk more, which we'll see next week. So how does God answer Habakkuk's complaint? Well, the first thing God tells Habakkuk is that he is providentially at work even when Habakkuk doesn't know it nor see it. God is providentially at work even when you don't know it. Or see it. Look at verse 5. Look among the nations, Habakkuk, and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Remember in verse 3, Habakkuk's complaint to God is, Why do you make me see? Why do you make me look upon iniquity? And you know how God answers him? Keep looking. But look even beyond Israel, look among the nations and see. Habakkuk, look beyond the borders of Israel, wonder and be astounded. And here's why. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Habakkuk, you think that I'm not acting. You think that I'm not responding to what's happening in Israel. You think that I don't care. You think that I'm indifferent But hear this, I'm doing a work in your days that is utterly unbelievable to you. See, Habakkuk didn't know. He didn't see God working, but he was working. He was working providentially among the nations and ultimately raising up the Chaldeans for his purposes, which we'll see. You see, the point is this, whether we know God is at work, or whether we see him at work, God is at work, providentially orchestrating all things. See, I think one of the reasons we often don't see God at work is because when we think of God at work, we're usually thinking in the category of the miraculous. For example, if if you wanted to show someone God at work in the scriptures, most of us would most likely turn to, for example, the book of Exodus, seeing God's miraculous intervention in Egypt. I don't think any of us would turn to the book of Esther to show God at work. But the reality is, God is just as at work in the book of Esther as he is in the book of Exodus, despite his name not even being mentioned in the book of Esther. You see, the scriptures affirm that God works in two different ways. The one way we could call God's unusual or rare work, the miraculous, the splitting of the Red Sea, that's God's unusual work. The other way God works, we could call his normal work, God providentially working behind the events of human history, orchestrating things behind the scenes. God's providence at work. I realize providence might be a foreign word to you, so let me give you just a basic definition. The New Dictionary of Biblical Theology defines it like this. The notion of God's providence encapsulates the conviction that God sustains the world that he created and directs it to its appointed end. So on the one hand, God sustains our world, and on the other hand, he directs it to its appointed end. You could call God's providence his hidden work. You see, God's not mentioned in the book of Esther. God is not seen in the book of Esther. But he's there working behind the scenes of events and decisions of human beings. See, in the book of Esther, Israel is legitimately facing the possibility of complete annihilation. Now, you would think that this would be a moment for God to work miraculously, but he doesn't. He providentially works behind the scenes through Mordecai and Esther, and Israel is saved because of it. Or you think of Joseph and his brothers. They betray him and sell him, and he's sent to Egypt and and sold as a slave there. And nothing in the narrative would tell us that God was working behind the scenes. Until Joseph again sees his brothers, and he's no longer a slave, but the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And do you remember Joseph's words to his brothers in Genesis 45, 48? Listen to this. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. But God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You see, Joseph interpreted the evil actions of his brothers against him as God's providential work in his life to send him to Egypt in order to save people from the famine. See, even when it seems that God is not working, that God is not active, he is, in fact, at work. He is, as Ephesians 1.11 states, working all things according to the counsel of his will. That all things means all things. You see, God reaffirms to Habakkuk that though you do, don't see me at work, understand, Habakkuk, that I am at work. And I am doing something that you would not believe Even if told. You see, most of us want God to work like he did in the Exodus. But most of human history, even Israel's history, was defined by God's providential work rather than his miraculous work. See, with all that is happening in our nation and around the world, do not think that God is not at work. He is providentially at work in all things. He is active whether you see it or not. He is working amongst the nations. He is working in our nation, in our city, on our streets, and in our lives, even when you feel that he is absent, even in the midst of sorrow and tragedy. John Webster, the great theologian, reflecting on God's providence, said this, Because God is, There is lament, but no tragedy. Because God is, there is lament, but no tragedy. I think he's right. God is providentially at work even when we don't know it nor see it. But what was God doing? What work was God actively doing that Habakkuk was unaware of? Well, he was raising up an instrument of justice an instrument of judgment against Israel. God was raising up an instrument of judgment. As he says in verse 6, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were the Babylonians. Habakkuk, you think I'm not doing anything. So let me explain to you what I'm doing. And you're not going to like it. I am raising up the Babylonian nation as an instrument of judgment upon my people. I will raise them as my hammer against Israel for Israel's rebellion and wickedness against me. Now, we're not totally sure how knowledgeable Habakkuk would have been regarding the Chaldeans at this time. If this prophecy was after the death of King Josiah in 609 B.C., then it's very likely that Habakkuk would have already heard the many rumors about the Chaldeans because they conquered the old capital of Assyria in 614 BC, Nineveh in 612 BC, Haran in 610 BC, and then they conquered Egypt in 605 BC. They were already on the move conquering other peoples and it's possible Habakkuk was already somewhat aware of this great nation on the move. But God now tells Habakkuk, I'm the one who raised this nation up as an instrument of judgment. They're going to do my bidding whether they realize it or not. But look at the the description that God gives of the Chaldeans in the following verses. It's not pleasant. Look at verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter And hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're conquering lands and people. They have no regard for other nations. Verse 7. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Now this is directly related to Habakkuk's complaint about Israel. What does Habakkuk say about Israel? Well, look at verse 4. He says, God, justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And now God says to Habakkuk that with the Chaldeans, justice goes forth from themselves. That is, they are a law unto themselves. The Chaldeans have no regard for authority or morality. They do what seems right in their own eyes. They make up their own rules as they go along. So here's what we need to see. God's judgment against Israel for their lawlessness is to send another nation more lawless than them that they might taste the bitterness of lawlessness. As David Pryor says, God's answer to Habakkuk's lament about lawlessness and injustice is greater lawlessness and more injustice at the hands of an evil empire of terrifying cruelty. God will bring justice through the injustice of the Chaldeans against the Israelites. That's what God's saying. The Chaldeans have no regard for my moral law, and I am sending them against Israel because Israel has no regard for my moral law. In other words, they're going to get a taste of their own medicine. Look at how else God describes the Chaldeans in verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. What a horrifying picture. They're described as leopards and wolves and eagles. These animals are known for their speed and aggression in pursuing their prey. They were a horrifying war machine that swiftly overtook nations and had no pity on their prey. In a matter of 20 years, they went from almost being completely unknown to a world power. If there's a verse that captures what they were truly like, it's verse 9. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. They lived for violence. They took people as though they were like sand, gathering them in jars on the beach. And I want you to notice this. Because of Israel's lawlessness, God raises up a nation of lawlessness to punish Israel. Not only that, because of Israel's violence, which was one of Habakkuk's cries, God raises up a violent nation against Israel. You've been violent, Israel, and now you will experience violence at the hands of foreigners. So God's response to Habakkuk in regards to Israel's violence is more violence. Are you uncomfortable yet? There's one last description God gives regarding the Chaldeans. He described their outrageous pride and arrogance. They were utterly self-confident. Look at verse 10 and 11. At kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. In the ancient world the way in which you would get over a fortress is that you would actually pile up the earth so that you could get over the fortress. They laugh at every fortress where they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. That is, they just destroy everything in their path and they keep going. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Guilty men whose own might is their God. They were utterly arrogant and proud And that will be the reason for their downfall, as we will see. This is God's answer. This is God's solution to Habakkuk's complaint in regards to the wickedness of Israel. He will raise up wicked Babylon to judge the nation of Israel for their sin. Habakkuk, this is the work that I am doing in your days. That you would not believe if told. Now, I know for some of us, that creates a lot of questions. And this morning, I'm not going to answer all of those questions, not until we look at Habakkuk's response next week, or maybe I will answer your questions. I'm not totally sure. But there are two ideas that come out of this passage that need to be addressed two implications about who God is and how he works. In light of these verses, two ideas that are deeply related. The first is this. These verses reveal that God is sovereign over the affairs of man. God is sovereign over the affairs of man and ultimately over all of creation. You see that explicitly in the statement of verse 6. I am raising up the Chaldeans. Why did the Chaldeans become a great and powerful nation? Why did they destroy Jerusalem? Because God. Because God. See, one of the repeated refrains, refrains throughout both the Old and New Testaments is that God is sovereign over all things, including the nations. In fact, if you look at the book of Daniel, which is telling us about the Israelites actually being captive in Babylon, so it's, it's, it's after Habakkuk, after Babylon is taken over Jerusalem and taken them prisoner. Um, The book of Daniel, and and now the Israelites are all slaves in Babylon. And and of course you have the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. But do you remember Daniel's prayer after God gives him the interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the king who conquered Jerusalem? Well, Daniel 2, 20, 20 20-3 Daniel gives this interpretation, and it's the right interpretation. And then Daniel praises God, and this is what he says. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. You see, Daniel acknowledges God's sovereignty over the kings of the earth. There is not a single ruler who has ever ruled apart from the sovereign will of God. And any ruler that is removed is only removed by the sovereign will of God, even in a democracy. In fact part of the whole purpose of the book of Daniel is God intentionally showing the kings of Babylon that he alone is God and he alone sovereignly reigns over creation. And that all of their accomplishments are due to God's sovereign will and purposes. King Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams and God grants Daniel wisdom to interpret the dreams for him. And one of the dreams is a prophecy about Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation because he refuses to humble himself before God. And these are the words that Daniel says to him, and these words are repeated over and over again in the book. Listen to this. Daniel 4, 24-25, Daniel is speaking to the king. This is the interpretation, O king. It is, it is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat like like an like eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you. In other words, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are going to be humiliated. Here's why: till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, doesn't listen. And one day, while walking on the roof of his royal palace, he says these words in Daniel 4, 30-32. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods periods of time shall pass over you. Why? Until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And after that time has passed, after Nebuchadnezzar is humiliated and then God restores him, These are the words that he proclaims about God, this pagan Babylonian king. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of the heaven heavens and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. A Babylonian pagan king articulates a better theology than many professing Christians today. You want to know what Nebuchadnezzar discovered? He realized that he was who he was and he accomplished what he accomplished because God willed it. God is able to raise up the Babylonians to be his instrument of judgment against Israel because he is the sovereign god of the universe. One of the most explicit texts in the Old Testament about God's sovereignty is Isaiah 46:8-11. I've read this before. Remember this and stand firm. This is God speaking. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And then he describes what it means for him to be God. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. And then he describes what that means. What does it actually mean for God to declare the end from the beginning? Is it him looking down into the future and seeing things? No, no, no. It's him declaring what is going to happen. My counsel shall stand. And I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass I have purposed, and I will do it. And God does not fail in keeping his word. See, this is partly what makes God, God. He is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over the nations, the creation, our lives. He is even sovereign over evil. See, this is why I always think it's hilarious when politicians talk about being on the right side of history as though somehow they're the ones who determines what the right side of history is. The only way to be on the right side of history is to be on the side of the Lord of history. Now I realize there is probably no claim in the scriptures that is more offensive to modern ears than the claim that God is sovereign over our lives. And here's why. Because the one thing that modern secular culture claims above all else is that you as an individual have complete autonomy over oneself. That no one, no one can tell you who to be or how to live. You as an autonomous being alone can determine how you want to live and what your identity will be. And the idea of God's sovereignty completely takes a sledgehammer to such an idea. John Stuart Mills, the atheist philosopher, captured so well what our culture thinks of the individual. Over himself, over his own body and mind, the individual is sovereign. You see the conflict? The Bible doesn't claim that. The Bible claims, over oneself, over one's body and mind, God is sovereign. Do you see the conflict? The reality is when you actually start to think about your life, if you're honest, you start to realize you're not as autonomous as you think. For example, none of us had any say on our own existence. God or the universe didn't ask your permission. Not only that, none of us had any say on the period in which we would exist. I'm guessing those who lived during World War II wished they had a say on that matter. Further, none of us had any say on who our parents would be or our siblings. Some of us wished we did. We had no say on what our appearance would be. My dad didn't have any say on his Casper-like skin color, that if he's in the sun too long, he'll turn into a tomato. None of us have any real say on when we're going to die and how we're going to die. Last time I checked, cancer and COVID doesn't respect anyone's autonomy. You're not as autonomous as you think. Canada is not as sovereign as it thinks. Justin Trudeau is not as autonomous as he thinks. Vladimir Putin is not as autonomous as he thinks. None of us are as autonomous as we think. See, here's what we have to understand. We tend to think of God as playing on the same field as us. And he's just a lot more powerful than the rest of us on the field. But that's not the right picture. God's not on the same playing field as us. He's the creator of the playing field. The only reason why there is a field is because of God. He's in a totally different realm of his own. Nothing in the created realm is self-existent and self-sustaining. We are all contingent upon God. We live and move and have our being in him. And this is why... God can raise up the Chaldeans as an instrument of his judgment against Israel because he's the sovereign God of our universe of which all the universe has its existence because he sustains the universe. Which leads to the second idea that comes from this passage and is related to God's sovereignty. Because God is sovereign, he is able to use Both the virtues and vices of mankind to accomplish his good purposes. Because God is sovereign, he is able to use both the virtues and vices of mankind to accomplish his good purposes. That's precisely what we have here. God is using the wicked Chaldeans to accomplish his good purposes. See, their intentions are completely driven by evil motives, pride, and violence. But God's intention is to bring justice to the nation of Israel. And part of the way in which he will do that is by bringing judgment upon the evil of Israel through the Chaldeans. And if that shocks you, well, it shocked Habakkuk as well, which we'll see next week. But there is example after example in the scriptures of this happening. God using evil to accomplish his good purposes. An obvious one, of course, is the story of Joseph, which I already alluded to. Remember Joseph's words to his brothers who wanted to kill him, but instead they sold him into slavery? What does he say to them? What you meant for evil. Your intentions were evil. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. See, there were two wills at work in Joseph being sent as a slave to Egypt, the will of his brothers who willed evil against him, and the will of God, which was meant for good. But it was in the evil act of his brothers that God's will will was done. You see, most of us don't have an issue with God using the good of mankind to accomplish his purposes. That's what he's doing here on a Sunday morning. He's using me and others as vessels to accomplish his purposes. But for some reason, we tend to have an issue with God using the evil of mankind to accomplish his good purposes. We tend to be far more appalled when God carries out his purposes through evil human agents than any other means. But here's what you have to realize. If God cannot use the wickedness of mankind to accomplish good, then evil in the end has the final word. See, here's what Christianity has taught throughout the ages. That God in his sovereignty, wisdom, and providence can and will accomplish his good purposes through both the evil and good of humanity while he himself remains completely untainted from evil and sin. And here's what we need to understand. There is no redemption. There is no salvation for us if that isn't true. If God cannot accomplish his good purposes through the evil intentions and actions of mankind, then there is no salvation for us. Here's why. When Jesus was crucified at the hands of Judas, the Jews, Caiaphas, and Pilate, it was the most evil act by the will of mankind in human history, because they murdered not just an innocent man, but a completely sinless man. Humanity conspired against the perfect, sinless Jesus and had him murdered. But we know from Scripture that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus, to die for the sins of the world. It was the will of the Lord to crush Him, as Isaiah 53 says. Which means, understand this, our salvation, our redemption rests upon this truth, that God accomplished His good purpose of salvation in Jesus through the evil int- intentions and actions of wicked men. Their intentions and actions were pure evil. They hated Jesus. But God's intentions, God's purpose was to conquer evil through their evil actions. And it's the same here in Habakkuk 1, 5-11. God will use the evil Chaldeans to accomplish his good purposes. There is a mystery to this that is beyond our finite minds. This goes back to what I said two weeks ago where God says in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your ways thoughts. There are aspects of God and his ways that are utterly incomprehensible to us. And that's partly what makes God, God. If God can be fully comprehended and understood, then I can promise you he's not the true and living God that the scriptures describe. If you don't have room in your thinking or a category that says, God and his ways are beyond my human reason, then you will ultimately turn God into an idol after your own image, one that is rooted in your reason alone. You will put him in a box that fits only what you like about God and get rid of everything that makes you uncomfortable about God. You see, if, if your concept of God doesn't lead you to worship him for his incomprehensible ways, then he's not the God of the Bible. Do you remember Romans 9 and 11, 9 to 11, one of the most emotionally difficult three chapters in the Bible, especially Romans 9? The Apostle Paul talks about election. And choosing Jacob over Esau even before they were ever born and before either of them had done good or bad. Paul speaks of God hardening whom he wills and having mercy on whom he wills. And then in chapters 10 to 11, he seeks to theologically articulate the mystery of God's hardening of Israel so that the Gentiles may be saved. And he actually tells us that God consigned Israel to disobedience in order to show mercy. And as Paul, who Paul is trying to articulate and think through it all, he simply stops and breaks out into worship at the utter mystery and wonder of God's incomprehensible ways. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and how inscrutable, that is impossible to understand his ways. It's impossible. It's beyond our human capacity. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? The answer is no one. No one was there in eternity past counseling God on how he ought to do things. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? All that we give to him, he already owns. For from him, And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, if your understanding of God never causes you to simply fall on your knees like that and cry out, you, O God, are beyond my understanding, for I am but dust. I do not understand what you are doing or why you are doing these things, but I surrender to you, acknowledging that you alone are God and you are good. If you don't have room for that in your thinking, then you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the sovereign God who reigns over the universe and he has raised up up the Chaldeans to be his hammer against Israel. He can, in his sovereignty, use evil to accomplish good while remaining completely untainted from sin. Which leads to my third and final point. God will bring judgment upon the wicked. This passage makes this abundantly clear. God is telling Habakkuk that judgment is coming to Israel. Israel will be punished for their sins. Israel will bear the indignation of the Lord. God's justice may not come right away. Habakkuk was crying out to God, How long will you be idle against the wickedness in Israel? But it will come. It will come. And this is not random on the part of God. In the covenant God made with Israel, he warned them that if they were unfaithful to the covenant, he would raise up another nation and bring judgment upon them. Which means when God sends the Chaldeans against Israel, God was not breaking the covenant. He was in fact upholding the covenant. Deuteronomy 28, which which was written hundreds of years before these events, describe what God would do if Israel was unfaithful to the covenant. Listen to some of these verses. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a whore to all the kingdoms, the kingdoms of the earth. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the sight that your eyes see. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. A nation whose language you do not understand. A hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. Babylon. God was fulfilling... His word to Israel. Here in Habakkuk, God is declaring that judgment is coming upon Israel. And in chapter 2, he declares to Habakkuk that he's also going to bring judgment upon Babylon for their sin, which we'll see in the coming weeks. But here's what we need to be aware of. The Bible makes clear that all these local judgments are foreshadowing God's universal judgment against humanity, where every human being will stand before the judgment seat of God. John the Apostle has this vision in Revelation 20 of just that event, and this is what he saw. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is an offensive claim to our modern society. Despite the fact that our society is obsessed with justice, Our world wants justice, but they denounce the only being who can bring true justice, God. There's a phrase that has been used quite a bit over the last few years in light of different offense. No justice, no peace. In other words, if there's no justice, we can't truly have peace. And that statement in and of itself is true. See, this is why God brings justice. This is why God judges sinners to establish justice. Peace. This is why God judged Israel, to bring about peace and shalom. And this is why God will judge the world in righteousness. And the question that each of us need to ask is this, am I ready to be judged by God? Are you ready to face the righteous judgment of Almighty God? And if your answer is yes, and the reason you answered yes is because you're convinced you've been a good enough person, then hear me this morning. You're not ready. You're not ready. To stand before God's judgment on the basis of your own goodness is like a man thinking he's ready to face a tsunami simply because he's wearing a bathing suit. Your bathing suit isn't going to help you, and neither will your supposed goodness help you. The Bible makes clear that all of us are not all that different than the Israelites that God judged. The scriptures proclaim that before God and his moral law, there is no one good or righteous. Stop comparing yourself to others. Compare yourself to what God demands of the human race. Romans 3, 10, 12, Paul says this, None, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Friend, if you think you will escape the judgment of God because you think you've been a morally upright good person, hear me on this. Hear me. You will not escape the judgment of God. No human can escape the judgment of God by his own effort or merit or by his own claim to goodness. In Revelation 6, 15 to 17, there's this, Horrifying picture of sinful humanity crying out for the mountains and rocks to fall on them, then have to face the judgment of God. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks... Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? You may ask, Peter, is there any hope? Is there any way to escape the judgment of God? Well, the answer is this. If left to yourselves, There is no hope. There is no way to escape the judgment of God. Not even the mountains will hide you from his righteous judgment, just as Israel could not escape the hammer of Babylon. But, but, God has provided a way of escape. There is one rock that can protect you from the judgment of God. There is one rock that can hide you and cover you, and that rock is the rock of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every person who hides himself or herself under the rock that is Christ shall escape the judgment of God. For the rock, Christ, will bear the judgment of God in your place and for your sins. That's what the cross of Jesus is all about. Jesus absorbs the justice of God so that all who hide in Christ will absorb the mercy of God. God's judgment is coming. And the question I leave you with this morning is this Will you hide yourself under Jesus, the rock of salvation? Let's pray. Father, we simply ask that you would save. That, Lord, you would give each of us a deeper, more holy fear of who you are. That we we might walk in your ways and honor you and love you. Forgive us, Lord, for wandering from your path. And help us by your spirit to keep our eyes fixed on the rock of our salvation the one who has done everything that is necessary for us to be reconciled to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.